Turn, if you would, to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. Somebody asked me last week if I was going to do a Mother's Day lesson. I don't think I've ever done a Mother's Day lesson before, so no, I don't know how to do a Mother's Day lesson. I do remember growing up on Mother's Day, we used to always uh, have a contest in church and give the oldest mother a, a flower, and the same lady won it every year. <laughs> then we, they used to give the youngest mother a flower until that got awkward, and so they stopped doing that. And then they gave the woman with the most children a flower, so you could probably win it. <laughs> Last week we started the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, probably the greatest chapter in the book, if not one of the greatest chapters in the Bible itself. We finished off chapter 7 with the discussion of why is it that I don't do what I want to do and the things that I don't want to do I keep on doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this world? And the answer is Jesus Christ. So we begin chapter 8 with the glorious declaration, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And last week we talked about the fact that we, apart from Christ, are condemned. We are condemned not because Christ came to condemn us. We are condemned before Christ came, and Christ came to provide salvation to us. But the glorious part of chapter 8 is the fact that God provides the means, the mechanism by which we can live a life that is pleasing to him. And that mechanism that person is the Holy Spirit and we had a long discussion last week about what it meant to walk in the flesh versus what it meant to walk in the spirit and we got down to about uh, verse 9 we actually read a few more verses but didn't get too far into them so we'll pick up in verse 9 just to kind of catch up from where we were last week you how however Having talked about living by the flesh, living by the Spirit, and you remember, let's see, we had the passage in Galatians about what it meant to live the sinful nature. We had the one about living the fruits of the Spirit. Ah, and then there's faith. We'll get to that in just a moment. Having talked about what it means to live in the flesh and how it leads to death, Paul then addresses the audience directly and says, you are not that way. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He is making a declaration to the believers at the church of Rome that you are being led by the spirit. And this is interesting. There are those who believe that uh, being filled with the spirit is something that takes place sometime after salvation and may or may not happen at all. If you go to a... Uh, charismatic church our friends and brothers over there they believe that there is such a thing as you are saved and then at some point in time some point in the future you are filled with the holy spirit and this is usually demonstrated by the speaking of tongues and we actually had a long discussion about that when we worked through the book of acts a couple of years ago 
Suffice it to say that we, I, don't believe that that's what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches that when you are saved, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the sign that you are, in fact, a believer. And I believe that's what this passage teaches us. Now, we can ignore the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can say no to the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is still there in the life of every true believer. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, here it is. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, to Christ. Remember chapter 6, we died with Christ, we were buried with Christ, we are in Christ. If we are in Christ... We have the Holy Spirit. We had a brief, brief, brief discussion last week about the nature of the Trinity. One of the Christian doctrines that is exceptionally important and to a lot of people somewhat confusing. The fact that God is three persons, but there is only one God. The Holy Spirit is distinct from Christ, who is distinct from God the Father, but they are the Godhead, they are one God in three persons. We can have a long discussion about that at some point in the future. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The absence of the Holy Spirit is a sign that you are not in Christ. If you are not in Christ, you are not buried with Christ, you are not resurrected with Christ, you are not free from the bondage of sin as Christ was. But if you if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, hmm, what does that mean? Well, it means that our flesh is still decaying, our flesh is still suffering from the curse that God put on Adam and Eve in the garden. In the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And on that day they died spiritually, and on that day they began to die physically we too as long as we live in this earth suffer the ravages of time anybody want to debate this anybody been to the doctor recently it's not a debate while our bodies are still being ravaged by sin the body is dead because of sin the spirit of life the spirit is life because of righteousness if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Nineteen times in this chapter we talk about the Holy Spirit. This chapter is about the Holy Spirit. In fact, um, I think this is taken from the uh, church doctrinal statement or something. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit restrains evil in the world. It convicts the world of sin and righteousness. It regenerates all believers. It indwells and anoints all who are saved. It is the baptism into the one body of Christ of all who are saved and continued feeling, filling for power, teaching, and service of those among the saved who are yielded to him and who are subject to his will. That's why we talk about the gifts of the Spirit that allow us to do what God wants us to do. And you see this in this passage. 
God the Father raising the Son so that we can have the Spirit. It's all there. The whole Trinity is there. So, that finished last week's lesson. On to this week's lesson. Guess what it's going to be about? The Spirit. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Who do we owe and what do we owe them? What he begins with is we are debtors. We owe somebody something. We owe God in Christ. We do not owe the flesh anything. Why is that? Because the penalty for our sins has already been paid. Verse 1, there is no condemnation. You know, it's interesting. We get into this whole thing of the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, and what do we owe people, and what is owed us, and what... We had all of that discussion, but we no longer owe that debt. You do not have to follow the desires of the flesh. This is interesting, and we talked about it last week, and we talked about it at depth the week before. Because chapter 7 is all about, oh, I keep on sinning. Why do I do that? Because I still have the flesh. But chapter 8 tells us we don't have to do that. And it's not that I have to stand here and garner up enough strength and energy on my own to overcome every temptation that is put in front of me. It is that I have to acknowledge the Spirit living in me, and by acknowledging the Spirit living in me, I can then overcome the temptations that are placed in front of me every day. That's the distinction. I can sit here and beat you over the head with a club until you're dead or I'm tired, and it won't make you right with God because you can't do it but the spirit enables us to do that which the spirit commands us to do huh we no longer have a debt to the flesh you don't have to do what the flesh tells you to do so then brothers we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if we live according to the flesh you will die i think this is about the third or fourth time he said this in this chapter in case you've missed it if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh you will live now here's the point The image is that I'm standing here at the crossroads. One path leads to life. One path leads to death. But I don't see that part of it because that's the end of the path. What I see right now is the flesh doing what my flesh tells me to do, what my sinful nature tells me to do, or I see a life following the Spirit. Question. At this point in time, which looks more appealing? Hmm, that's a harder question. We would like to think that sin is always ugly, wretched, disgusting, 
and we look at it and go, ooh, I would never do that. But the reality is, if all I'm looking at is the now, if all I'm looking at is this moment in time, then I've missed the big picture. What is the big picture? Faith. Faith says, I acknowledge the fact that by choosing the flesh or the spirit now, I am choosing the eternity of life or death. That's what faith gives us. More about that in just a moment. Now, it is interesting, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, backing up. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. There is some discussion about this passage about living and dying. Is he addressing a believer who, if you live according to the flesh, you will die? And if it is a believer and it's death, is it physical death or is it eternal death or all of the above? This gets to a difficult topic. Number one, we believe quite clearly that everyone who is truly saved is truly saved and will not fall from their faith. Number one. So if we're talking about believers, and we're talking about believers who are living according to the flesh, and it says they die, we're not talking about them losing their salvation. Now, are there believers so-called who live lives of the flesh and fall away because they were never saved to begin with? Yes, of course. But the question is, in the life of the believer, is it possible to sin and God says, enough of this foolishness, you're going home? And the answer to that is probably yes. Probably yes, that we as believers can sin to the point where God says, you're not doing me a whole lot of good in this world. I need to put you on the bench and take you home. Okay? Not a good option. But, but, remember what we've said all along. If your life is marked by a path of living according to the flesh, if that is the general pattern of your life, it is a red flag, a warning that you may not be what you think you are. We as believers will sin. We all do. You can read the scripture. It's there. We confess our sins. He forgives us our sins. We repent. We do it again. And that's the life. But there's a difference between that and living a life dedicated to the life of the flesh. If, in fact, we are living a life of the flesh, it is a red flag that we may not be where we think we are. Now, God's grace is amazing. God's grace covers a lot of things. It's the old discussion. We actually had it, when did we have it? Oh, back in the Old Testament. You know, how many sins does it take to show that you're not, I don't know. Why? Because if we had that discussion, you'd want to see how close you could get to that line. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. 
We know that in the Bible there are examples where one sin produced death. And we know in the Bible there are examples of those who sinned long time and God, Christ, the Holy Spirit forgave them and filled them and moved them to do great things. The grace of God is wonderful, okay? But remember, if you're living a life of the flesh, the end result of that path is death. But if the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death. Question. How much should we play with that snake that's sitting in the yard? Okay. You know that one that's, we were talking about snakes this morning at home. You know that snake that's five feet long, has a little rattle at the back? Okay. And it's there. Some people have a fascination with snakes. Let's go play with that snake a little bit. You know, we don't want to get bit, obviously. We don't want to, you know, bring it into the house, obviously. But let's just play with it a little bit. You know, the rattle's kind of cute. Let's just know. What do you do with the five-foot snake that's got the rattle on its tail sitting in your yard? You kill it. Not much of a discussion. Question. What do you do with that five-foot sin that's got the rattle on the end of it that's running around your yard? And the answer is we play with it. We bring it inside. We take it into our bed. We set it at our dinner table. And we want to see how much we can know. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. What are the deeds of the flesh? Remember that passage from Galatians? The one I said that someday I'm going to have a nice lesson we're going to go through every one of them and depress us all to no ends? Question. How much do we toy with these items, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy. Oh, it's just a little bit of jealousy. A little fit of rage. Okay? I mean, if I didn't have a little fit of rage, that driver wouldn't know the stupid thing that he's done, right? How do we put to death the deeds of the flesh. You say, well, I'll sit here twiddling my thumbs, doing my own thing, and when the Holy Spirit wants to get rid of them, the Holy Spirit will get rid of them. Okay, that sounds good. So, I'll continue to get mad at that driver who cuts me off in traffic until the Holy Spirit convicts that driver not to do anything stupid. <laughs> Let me tell you what the Holy Spirit will do the driver cuts you off, you, fe- you, know, you explode with a few expletives that you would not use in polite company, and the Holy Spirit says, fit of rage, fruit of the flesh, what are you going to do about it? That's what the Holy Spirit will do. And you say, well, he deserved it. Fit of rage, deeds of the flesh, what are you going to do about it? 
And the answer is, kill it. Holy Spirit, sorry, I repent. Help me to not do that again. You can work through this list. And there are some on this list that we as a society toy with continually. I mean, we could start at the top of the list with sexual immorality. No, we better not do that. Uh, let's talk about jealousy, okay? Let's talk about, you're not jealous, are you? You just like the other person's stuff or his position or his influence or something. That's not wrong. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it motivates us to do more. No, it's just jealousy, We take each of these and we wrap them in a nice shiny wrapper and we take that five-foot snake with a little rattle in its tail and we bring it into our house and we play with it. And the scripture says that path leads to death. If you live according to the flesh, let's see, live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit in you you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We have been talking for the last several weeks about the process of sanctification, the process by which we work out in our everyday life what God has put in it, which is the righteousness of Christ. This is what the Spirit does. He tells us to put to death the deeds of of the body for you for all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry abba father now we'll get the feminist part out of the way real quick it says sons Sons, daughters, we'll take both, right? Years, years ago, Teresa was in the grocery store sharing the gospel with one of our children. They accepted Christ. She said, now you're a child of God, to which the child responded, what? Does that make you an adult of God? No, we're all children of God. Think about this for a moment. Think about this. It is one of those sayings that we are so accustomed to that we oftentimes neglect to imagine the implication of this statement. There is the king of the country, and you are a peasant living in that country. You would like to think the king likes you. You might just be happy if the king didn't hate you. But you would like to think the king liked you. You'd be really impressed if the king spoke to you. You'd be enamored if the king invited you to dinner. You would love it if the king said good things about you and your family. But what if the king adopted you and brought you in to their family. Huh. 
Why doesn't that excite us? Because we've heard it so often and we take it for granted and we don't realize the glorious blessing that we have in Christ. Christ died. We died with him. Christ was buried. We were buried with him. Christ was resurrected and we were resurrected with him. But since we are in Christ and Christ is God's son, we are the adopted children of God. So we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is a term of endearment. No, it is not a Swedish singing group. It is a term of endearment. Daddy, Papa, whatever. It is a sign of endearment that we can say to God, our Father. Hmm. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. What does that mean? I am saved. Okay? I am guilty of some horrible crime. I am taken to the courtroom. The righteous judge looks at me and says, you're guilty. No question. There's lots of witnesses. No excuse. No extenuating circumstances. You're guilty. And the penalty is death. But you know, I'm going to let you off the hook. And you go, dodged a bullet, literally. But then you leave the courtroom. What is your attitude at that point? Well, it could be gratitude. It could be, I think I'll go do it again. And do it again. And do it again. And you know what? Next time he may not let me off the hook. So I'd better watch out for the cops this time. Maybe I'll do a better job of hiding my tracks. Maybe I'll... And you continue to live in fear. You received grace, but you continue to live in fear because you know that you're still living under the threat of the punishment of the law. At any moment, the law could catch up with you again and punish you again And maybe that judge won't be as merciful as the previous judge. We as believers could have been justified. We could have been declared righteous. And God could say, now you're on your own. You'd better fly right this time or you're in trouble. That could have happened. In which case, we would have been saved and we would have lived a life of fear that we cannot continue to measure up to what is expected of us. That could be true, but that's not what happened. What happened was we were adopted by the judge. Huh. Question. What does the life look like for a believer? I mean, let's, let's assume that we're a believer What does the life look like that is lived by fear as compared to the life 
that is lived in the acknowledgement that we are the adopted sons of God. What's the difference? The second one is joy. And the first one is just labor. It is interesting. You go back to what? The prodigal son. And the son returns home after living in debauchery, receives the grace of the father, and attends the party. And what does the older son do? I've done my duty every day, and you don't throw me a party. You... How many Christians do we know? And I'll go ahead and use the word Christian. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. How many Christians do we know that live a life of fear that either tomorrow God's going to give up on them or tomorrow God's going to give grace to somebody that doesn't really deserve it, not like me, or that has fear that, 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 dot, 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 fill in the blank with, We are not called to be slaves to fear. Hmm. The spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There are all kinds of external signs that someone is a believer. Okay? There are. The fruit of the Spirit should be evident in the life of a believer. I can look at you and make some sort of judgment. Are you living the life of a believer or not? But we also know that a lot of those things on that list we can fake. Okay? Go find you a good old-fashioned Pharisee, and he's faking the heck out of it. Okay? That's why Christ said you are whitewashed tombs. You look real good on the outside, but on the inside, it's just death. So while there are outside indicators, and it is interesting because we as a community, as believers, as a church, are called to hold each other accountable to those things. I mean, we are. Somebody that is living in open, unconfessed sin is to be approached by the community and encouraged to repent. So it's not like those are unimportant But even when the church does that, we're not judging the condition of the heart because we don't see the heart. God sees the heart. So while there are external signs and indicators that demonstrate that you are, in fact, living the life of Christ, the ultimate sign is that the Holy Spirit lives in you and makes it aware to you that you are in Christ. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does that mean? Does that mean that the Spirit gives you a warm feeling? Well, I hope that's there. But let's look at, back to last week's lesson, 
the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and no, we're not going to get to that again, where I always forget one. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. So the Spirit living in us bears witness that we are in Christ. How? By producing fruit. Now, does this fruit have an external manifestation? Probably. Usually. But the important thing is that the Spirit is telling our spirit these things are good. Do this. Bear this fruit in your life. So here it is. You take the previous passage in Galatians, you take this passage in Galatians, and the Spirit says, do this. Not only does the Spirit say, do this, the Spirit empowers you to do this, to do and produce the fruit. In fact, a more accurate way to say it would probably be that the Spirit does it all in you if you're walking according to the Spirit. The Spirit himself bears witness that with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We get the inheritance. That's cool. What is the inheritance that we get in Christ? Come on, somebody has an idea. A check with lots of money on it? What? Eternal life. We receive eternal life. I've gone to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. Come on. I am giving you an inheritance. Go ahead. Is Jesus our spiritual big brother? I don't know. Is he? <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. <laughs> His question was, is Jesus our spiritual big brother? And the answer is, yes. What does that mean? He annoys us like a big brother does? No. I hope that's not what that means. If children, then heirs. So go all the way back to chapter 6. We'll want, run through it one more time. Christ died. We died with him. Christ was buried, we were buried with him. Christ was raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead and given eternal life. Christ is a son, we become adopted children. Christ is an heir, we become the heir. Why? Because we are in Christ. This is all the good stuff. This is what we have received as a result of being in Christ. But then there's the next phrase. Don't read it. It'll just depress you. <laughs> provided, provided 
we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's just skip that verse, okay? Why did Christ suffer? Well, first off, how did he suffer? He was reviled, he was hated, he was mocked, he was attacked, he was arrested on false charges, he was condemned falsely, he had a mock trial where he was convicted, he was beaten, he was mocked by foreigners and strangers, and he was taken to a cross and he was executed in one of the most painful methods you can imagine. You know, they didn't have a clause in the Roman army, cruel and unusual punishment is against the law. You know, theirs was kind of cruel and unusual punishment is encouraged, just for the heck of it. Christ suffered. We can look at the life of Paul. He persecuted the Christians and then was converted. Once he was converted, everybody hated him. The Jews hated him. For a while, the Christians didn't trust him. He went on a missionary journey. At this point, he was beaten. At this point, he was stoned. At this point, he was shipwrecked. At this point, he was bitten with a snake. At this point, he was beaten. Oh, yeah, and he was probably stoned again. And while obviously he hasn't gotten to it in his life since he's still writing this book, eventually he was executed. Huh. I'm the heir of God. Why doesn't God just zap them? Why does God allow the suffering in our life? Do you remember this passage from Romans chapter 5? We spent some time on it because we didn't like it. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that the suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, hmm, who has, he has given us. And we wrestled with this that we might, on a good day, acknowledge that our suffering produces perseverance, that it produces something. What irritated us about this passage was the word rejoice. We rejoice in our sufferings because our sufferings make us more like Christ. Question, when was the last time you rejoiced in your suffering? Now, this rejoicing is not giddy, ha-ha, isn't this fun? That's not the rejoicing we're talking about right here, okay? This is the calm acknowledgement that it is good. And we're going to talk about this probably week after next. And we know that all things work together.
for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Verse 28. Yes, Phil. Read it. And he has the same path. <laughs> there is a debate. It's been going on forever as far as I know. The scripture says that if Christ suffered, we will suffer with him. If Christ was persecuted, we are persecuted with him. We have lived in a bubble in the mid-20th century living in America where that wasn't necessarily evident in everyday life. The debate is this. Yes, if Christ calls us to suffer, we are to suffer with patience and perseverance. But is suffering a necessary component of the Christian life? And there seems to be a lot of verses that would indicate that it is. Which leads you to the next discussion, which is, then why aren't we persecuted more? Which leads you to the bad observation, maybe we're not very good Christians. No, I didn't say that. There are places in the world where they are being persecuted every day. The observation is simply this. Christ suffered, and we should not, at a minimum, be surprised if we too suffer. We shouldn't be surprised. We are heirs of, with Christ. But that doesn't mean that it's a bed of roses from here on out. Verse 18, fabulous verse. I think every verse in this chapter is, by the way. For our, I consider that our sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of our present time, elsewhere they are referred to as our light and momentary afflictions. And if you remember, it's been several years since we discussed that passage, we had a discussion about what momentary means. You know, for me, momentary is about yeah, 55 milliseconds. I pricked myself, it hurt, I got over it, whew, I suffered. What if momentary in the Eyes of eternity are the 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years that God gives us in this world. I consider 
the sufferings of this present time. What is the present time? Is it, I'm sick right now, today is this present time? Or is the present time this life that we're living in right now? Probably yes. You ready for this? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. The scriptures are very adamant. We are strangers. We are sojourners living in this land. This land is not supposed to be right for us. We wait for the glory to be revealed. You know, looking at this verse, I wanted to sit here and, you know, we've got a little scale at home, you know, the time where you put a weight on one side and you put a weight on the other, and you're not going to make some little thing and put it on there to show, you know, here's the momentary affliction, and here is the glory to be revealed. The problem with it is our viewpoint, our eyes back to Hebrews without faith it is impossible to please God without faith this momentary affliction this suffering of the present time is all encompassing and you know that's true you've seen it in your own life I mean I got bit by a fire ant yesterday All of a sudden, that became very important. What is that in the grand scheme of things? Nothing. Nothing. But our eyes, without faith, become focused on the here, the now, this minute, the suffering that I'm encountering right now. And all of a sudden, on the scale of life, it is huge. It's massive. And then there's some idea of something in the future that I don't really understand. Yeah, who knows? It takes faith to say this side of the scale, this side of the scale that has the afflictions of your everyday life. And I want to understand, I am not, not belittling any of the afflictions. They're all real afflictions. You go to the hospital and it really is cancer. Not fake cancer, real cancer. Your children are going down the wrong path. It's not fake, it's real. The suffering is real. We are not Gnostics who believe that the material world is all imaginary. It's real. It's not a question of Is it real or not? It's a question of how does it compare to the glories that are going to be revealed? What are the glories that are going to be revealed? Well, we can start with the easy one, heaven. Okay? You're staying in your house. Your house needs some work. It's frustrating. Hmm. But you're going to a house built by God where you will live for eternity. Huh. How do the two compare? Hmm. 
Your body is ravaged by disease. Your body is ravaged by sin. But you're going to be going to a place where there is no sin and there is no suffering for eternity. You know, I was a math major, and you do integration where you measure the area under a curve. Okay? You take the years of this life, multiply it by the amount of suffering as you go across the years, and that's one half the equation. On the other half the equation is infinity times blessing. Now, I was a math major. You start multiplying things by infinity, it gets real weird. (laughs) But suffice it to say, it gets real big. But what does it take to look at this side of the equation and say that it is nothing compared to this side? It takes faith. That's the hard part. Who gives us the faith? Christ. Who gives us the sign of that faith? The Holy Spirit living in us. We were buried. We were raised. We are co-heirs with Christ. He suffered. We suffer. He received glory. And we will share in that glory. That's fabulous. That's amazing. It isn't that this world is not difficult. It's that it is only the momentary time before eternity. So let's back it up one more step. You walk according to the flesh, you follow the deeds of the flesh, and you end up in death. Take eternity, multiply it by really bad stuff, and you get really bad stuff for a long time. Or you follow the Spirit, manifest the fruit of the Spirit in your life, and you receive the glory, you share the glory with Christ. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have provided for us. I pray, Lord, that each of us would continually say yes to the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we too may manifest the fruits of the Spirit and not the fruits of the flesh. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.